0: I'm John Feldman and I'm Andrew Smith and this is The Rally Call
1: and we're live.
2: Good day, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of The Rally Call podcast. This is Scott Switzer, producer and moderator. Today, we're very excited to have a special guest, Tony Hughes, joining us. I'm going to pass it over to Andrew to tell us what we're going to talk about.
1: Thank you, Scott. Today's episode is the future of selling, and I'm excited to introduce our guest, Tony Hughes, who is the co founder and sales innovation director at Sales IQ Global. He has been ranked number one sales blogger globally by both Top Sales Magazine and Best Sales Blogger Awards. Tony is ranked a top three sales expert and thought leader globally by LinkedIn and the most read person on the topic of B2B selling within their platform. He has more than 500,000 blog followers and has been rated the most influential person in professional selling within Asia Pacific three years in a row. Tony's latest book, Tech-powered sales focuses on the future of selling and the seismic changes that are undergoing the sales industry today and what salespeople must do to adapt and survive.
3: Thank you. I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us today. I'm I'm really excited about this. I've been reading your material for years and years, and I'm a big fan of the content that you produce. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. Uh, Tony, I know that you have had a ton of experience in working with all sorts of sales reps in terms of experience level. In your opinion, Tony, from what you've seen, what separates the mediocre sales reps from the ones that are excellent?
3: It's a really great question. Uh, if we think about what it takes to be successful in selling, and there's a there's a crazy array of skills you have to bring together. You almost uh, need to be an evangelist in ah in establishing interest and interest in breaking into the world of other people. Uh, you, you need to be a psychologist. You need to be an engineer of value. You need to be a politician. There's there's all of these skills that you need. Uh, The great salespeople have got uh, an intrinsic level of curiosity. They're genuinely curious about the world of their customer, and they operate with really positive intent. And by that, I mean they're all about the customer and them driving improved results rather than them, the seller, trying to make their sale. So we've known that to be successful in selling, you need a reasonable level of IQ. You, You can't be dumb and succeed in life. But you also need a high level of EQ, uh, emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. You need to understand your own strengths and weaknesses and how to read other people and and relate effectively to them uh, and in engaging with them. But there's a new Q that everybody needs today, and that's TQ, technical quotient. One of the things we know about the future is that it's filled with technology the advances in technology are just crazy, and many roles are disappearing. So the best uh, sellers today have got those traditional skills, uh, IQ EQ, but also now TQ that, that's they're the people that I see being most effective.
0: I want to dig into TQ a bit more, Tony, if that's okay. In your opinion, what have been some of the seismic changes that you've seen in the industry brought on from these technical advances?
3: The interesting thing in selling is that there's a real paradox for the seller or the selling organization. We know that we need relationships of trust with those who we would like to buy from us and with our existing clients. The reality, however, is that for someone who does not yet know us and someone worth getting to, a busy senior executive, they are not lonely and bored and looking for a new friend from the land of sales in their life. So the reality is sellers have to find a way to break through. And the future of selling is where buying intent meets seller relevance. So one of the things that sellers need to do is to become – skilled, and even masterful in monitoring for what I'd describe as trigger events, things that happen in the marketplace or the world of the customer that, for them, creates awareness of need. And then what happens is the seller is able to contextualize engagement. Imagine if everybody that you were speaking to was in the buying window or acknowledged a level of pain or frustration with current states. And for most sellers and marketers, they're reasonably okay, maybe okay, with buying intent tools that flush out or identify the 3% that are in the buying window. The problem with engaging with that part of the market, the 3%, is that it's a red ocean shark feeding frenzy of competition because others are doing the same thing. Although there's only 3% that are actively looking, 40% of the market is typically open to change. They've got a level of dissatisfaction. So if we can use technology to identify those clients that are in our ideal customer profile, and then we find a contextualized way to engage with them with relevance, now we get to sell strategically and we can bring the best of being human in how we sell, leveraging big data and tech to actually find those people and create the initial conversation.
2: We use captera in my organization for their yeah. their buyer intent, and exactly what you said is the reality that you know three percent are showing themselves through those channels to be uh, buyers with intent. meanwhile there are an immense number of companies within that specific category who are listening. So, you know, the feeding frenzy is the perfect analogy. So um, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on, you know, besides the, the sort of the obvious, if you will, the capteras, um, what kind of guidance do you give people when you are talking about other methods of identifying intent?
3: So if we think about trigger events, typically the most powerful trigger event, would be a role-based one. So let's imagine that you sell marketing automation software uh, and you're good at defining your ideal customer profile. Uh, And you define an ICP, an ideal customer profile, typically at three levels. You you think about the firmographics, so they're things like the number of employees, uh, the industry that they're in, the geographic location. You then think about psychographics. And an example of this We're looking for clients that are typically growing. So clients that are in growth mode or crisis mode are typically motivated to make fast decisions. A company that's in even keel, steady state mode is often difficult to move in decision making. So we're looking for someone that's typically growing because there's less risk of them being a bad debt uh, and the motivation is positive and they, they want to act quickly So that's firmographics and psychographics. And then the next thing is technographics. So if you sold marketing automation software, you would think about, well, which technologies do we complement incredibly well? Which technologies do we often replace? Because there's common dissatisfaction in the market around that tech, maybe against your psychographic attribute uh, of organizations that are growing. So you define your ICP And against those attributes, you then start to think about the trigger events. So if we think, well, we're looking for companies that are growing, you think, well, what are the trigger events around growth? An example would be they launch new products, they acquire another business, they expand into new markets. Uh, if, if If you think about a growth mindset, a new senior executive into a role is almost always hired to affect change. People that have been in a role for a long time are often rusted on to the status quo, right? They see change as a whole lot of work and risk, but a brand new senior executive into a role typically has a five-month window with their boss, say it's the CEO, uh, where they'll, they'll they'll be backed. Uh, most of the requests they make will be approved. Once they're outside that initial honeymoon period, they then become, and I'm going to be facetious here, but another tired and broken person sitting around the boardroom table who doesn't <laughs> deliver, Right. But so so there's this window when you senior execs want to affect change so you know that'd be an example right you use technology so there's headless browser technologies and various platforms out there that enable you to identify your ideal customer uh, profile against a website URL um, there's a company I've invested in I'm on their advisory board an Australian company called trigger.ai so it's trigger without the E, trigger.ai. And what they do is run headless browser tech to do this, but they also ingest uh all of the job advertisements and job descriptions. And by that they can infer technology that you can't sniff with tech, right? So if they're if they're hiring people with particular skills and platforms, that indicates they have that in-house. So uh, and you can use um trigger event software to identify for role-based changes. And most of us are familiar with, for example, LinkedIn Sales Navigator. If you save an account and then leads, a lead in Sales Navigator is not like a CRM lead. It's just a person of interest. Uh, But the Sales Navigator platform will then let you know when, when roles change. And if we've got a big supporter of us that leaves our existing customer and goes somewhere else, well, that's a trigger event to follow that person into their new organization where they've been hired to affect change and maybe replace a competitor uh, or or solve a problem if there's a vacuum, but that supporter of ours will be replaced. So we need to very quickly go build a a relationship with the person promoted internally or comes in externally uh, before a competitor follows them in. Uh, And then the third trigger event, there's a domino effect, is that person we build a relationship within our existing customer to to upsell and cross-sell as we deliver for them, we can ask them for a referral into the organization that they came from. So that's an example of relationship-based trigger events in using tech.
1: So this group of buyers you just described, Tony, beneath the 3%, they're the ones that are open to change but are not outwardly showing that. What you're describing is technology that, it doesn't automate or replace any behaviors that a salesperson is maybe already doing. It's doing things that you can't do without technology. There's physically no way to monitor all the job changes. There's no way to to understand a buyer's changes and their situation that is a trigger event. And, and what we talked about on a previous episode was the proliferation of sales automation tools and how many of them there are and how we're a bit concerned that a lot of these tools are taking are, are fooling people into thinking that they can break away from the the EQ and the IQ that you spoke about earlier and rely on automation tools. So these things you're talking about, there it's it's a new skill that didn't exist before. Is that correct?
3: Well, technology is rapidly evolving and it becomes overwhelming and bewildering for many people, and, and I definitely understand that. But if you look at the most basic piece of tech for a seller, Uh, it 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 would be their cell phone, yeah? (laughs) And the number of times I'll phone a salesperson, you know, in a company I'm working with and it goes through to voicemail and instead of hearing their wonderful voice, you know, hey, this is Tony, sorry, I can't take your call right now. Please leave a message, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Rather than that, I get some telco automated bot, you know, either robotically reading me back the cell phone number I called Uh, Or saying, you know, uh, please leave a 10-second message and it will be converted from, you know, voice to text. And you're thinking, did I even call the right person? Is this really them? And then later, I'll talk to the rep and say, um, hey, how do you feel about getting your voicemail going? And so often they say, oh, yeah, I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. And I'm thinking, what? You know, the most basic fundamental tool. Imagine imagine if you employed a carpenter to, to come and renovate your kitchen and they didn't know how to sharpen their chisel <laughs> or to use any of their basic tools. You'd be going, are you kidding me? I, I need to go get somebody else. Imagine imagine if you were boarding a flight and as you enter the threshold of the aircraft and they're, they're checking your boarding pass, you glance to your left down into the cockpit and you overhear the pilot say to the co-pilot, hey, do you know what? I love flying, but I'm just not into the tech, right? Like I would be turning around and getting off the aircraft. So the most fundamental piece of tech after phone is a CRM system and the number of reps that don't know how to create their own dashboards and reports, um, they, they haven't figured out how to do the most basic automation elements inside CRM, which is their system of record. Again, imagine if you went to a doctor and the, the doctor talked to you and, and took your pulse and listened to your heart and then wrote you out a script and said, well, you know, thanks. If, if if anything else you need, come back and see me. But at no stage did they did they fill in their patient management, their patient record system. Like I would be saying to the doctor, aren't you going to create a record of this visit? Imagine if the doctor said, Look, do you want me to figure out what's wrong and give you a script? Or do you want me to fill in my patient record system? Right? like and I've heard reps say things like that. Do you want me to be out with customers selling, or do you want me filling in the CRM? Well, I want you and I expect you to do both. You're a professional. And there's so much tech that can, for, for example, you know, calls can be recorded and transcribed. Um, you know, there's like there's there's great tech for, for doing that. So there's many things we can automate. And I would say CRM is the most fundamental piece of technology that every seller needs to be masterfully good at using and then um, uh, these uh, outreach automation tools. Um, So so these sequencing tools, things like uh, Outreach.io, Sales Loft, uh, Salesforce, HVS, High Velocity Selling. So these these cadencing and sequencing tools I'd suggest would be the next thing.
0: So Tony, I have a question for you and it, it has to do with the the outreaches and the automation tools and the one thing that I've learned in this uh, in this crazy industry is that you really want to be personalized, and you really want to be relevant to to your prospect. With those tools, it almost seems like people are using them wrong because they are doing a mass message to a to a variety of people because that's what the tool says it can do. And the result is you're not actually landing with the prospect because you're not relevant to them. Do you do you see that as a problem with these type of uh, of these type of tools,
3: John? You are bang on the money. Uh, in in the book Tech Powered Sales that I I co-authored with with Justin Michael, uh, we actually talk about um, personalization being the holy grail of outreach automation. Uh, and there's a concept we talk about in the book of liquid syntax. The, this idea of ingesting uh, personalization attributes and being able to contextualize at an automated level—you know, which would be the right personalization attribute to play back. Now, the technology is not there today. Um, you know, we've, we've 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 just witnessed Chat GPT. Um, so to generating a level of awareness in the world. it's it's it, it's been around for ages. in the book we talked about GPT3 uh, and its predecessors uh, previously and how we think it's going to really transform things. But if you automate spam and if your personalization attributes are weak, uh, all, all you do is burn through a list really quickly and damage your brand. So I' I've, I've got um, in my Gmail at the moment, I've got 25,000 unread emails. I've got uh, about 350,000 followers and first-degree connections in LinkedIn, so I get bombarded with clumsy, awful spam uh, as in-mails inside LinkedIn. But people who use personalization attributes. um, Hey, Tony, congratulations on, or I noticed that you're you know co-founder and sales innovation director at Sales IQ Global. Or, hey, Tony, I noticed we're both based in Sydney. Um, you know, I, I notice you've been in your role for 10 years. Like, you, like, these are really weak, clumsy personalization attributes. They don't really show a level of research and relevance at all. So, the, the thing that's missing in all of the tech, uh, in, in the book, uh, there's a little chapter on a day in the life of tomorrow, and I I, I paint this little case study scenario of a, of a sales situation, and it, at the end of it, I say, look, this might seem like science fiction, but every single thing you just read, every single thing is all here today, with the exception of one thing, and the one thing that's missing today in all of the tech is the orchestration layer, the, the piece that brings everything together. So we've got things that can that can um, uh, automate research and trigger events, uh, analyse annual reports, pull in the financial data, develop all of the insights. Um, Go and find phone numbers for us, uh, look for common connections, ask for referrals, but orchestrating this is tricky. But John, you're right. Um, Personalization that shows relevance is the most difficult thing to do well.
0: And I started this off with the question of what separates mediocre from excellent. Now we're getting into the meat of it because there is a ton of technology out there. And to Andrew's point, it's almost as, as if sellers are relying on the technology right, a little bit too much, in, in place of them getting better at their job. And part of this technology wave that we're seeing is that sales professionals have to get better at using that technology and becoming more personalized and becoming more valuable, knowing like what to say to somebody who's in the 3% red ocean as opposed to the message that somebody's in the 40% bucket. So do you see, or maybe I'll ask in a different way, in 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 what percentage of weight does content play in this? Because certainly you wouldn't send the same message to the three percent buyer as you would to the forty percent willing to move.
3: That's so true. Uh, if someone is actively looking for what it is that we sell, they are typically focused on uh, why are you uniquely different in positive ways that matter to me, the buyer? So they're seeking to compare. And often they're trying to treat all of the potential sellers as a commodity that they can play off, right? Com- compare and compete is the thing they're, that, that, that they're trying to get the sellers to do. With the 40% focusing on why we think we're uniquely different is absolutely the wrong conversation to build. We need to instead build a conversation around why change now. So we need to turn up with a research point of view On how that potential buyer, that buyer persona within our ICP where we've noticed a trigger event, something that indicates openness to change or awareness of the need to change, we turn up with a point of view, right? If we we were talking, for example, to a marketing manager, I'll just stay with that example. We say, hey, John, uh, hey, the, the reason for the call is I think there could be a way for you to drive down cost of acquisition, and at the same time improve average order size, do you mind if I ask, you know, what's what's your current strategy to to, to achieve those two things? And if they said, well, well, hang on, before I answer that, I need to know more than that. The next layer of the conversation for the seller, it's really important they avoid talking about them, themselves, or their product or solution or their capabilities. Instead of that, they need to then talk about the strategy that drives the result, right? We'd say, sure, well, The the way we're seeing other organizations like yours drive those results uh, is um, focusing their campaigns where there's stronger buying intent, so more effective targeting, and then with more effective personalization for engagement. They're the things that we've seen organizations use to really move the needle. And then you talk about a company and their specific results that they've achieved to give it some weight, then you ask another question. And and hopefully what you're doing is the customer's thinking, wow, I'm accountable in my own role. My own personal KPIs are around improving those metrics. And an improvement is also a business case for investment. You know, this monetizes strongly within our organization. So, I want to drive those improved results. I'm responsible for it. That strategy for achieving the improved result makes sense. And, gee, we have a gap. I can see we have a gap internally. Their current platform tools approach just isn't doing it. And now they know why the seller is relevant to them. So in summary, with inbound leads, the is focused on comparing us with competition. We need to reframe the conversation um, and instead get to the what triggered the interest, uh, what's the business case, what's the improved results they're looking to drive, where did they see their risks in getting this done successfully? So that's an example of how to reframe. But when we're driving outbound, right, so there's, you know, where we're trying to uh, appeal to the 40% that are open to change, we need to do it with a point of view on why change, why now, rather than why us.
0: So this is really interesting, because now we're starting to get into, like, the, the sales of the future. And, I, and I'm in my mind, I'm thinking of the workflow, right? Yeah. Uh, something comes in, maybe that piece of content was triggered, and it's somebody who is in the 3%. And then it's going to go to either an SDR or to an AE. And this is where the pre-call planning is super important. And this is something that I think that sales reps don't do enough of. But in, but with what you're describing with this workflow, if I've got the data that says, hey, this is a target, this target's in the 40% because they display these type of characteristics. My suggestion is that you do a pre-call plan around focusing on that they're willing to listen, but they may not be may, they might not be hunting right now. And then your whole strategy changes. But but we talked earlier about, I mean, you know, old school selling, right? Where you didn't have any of this. So you would just launch into a generic message. But it sounds as if in in with what you were saying that the industry is really going to apply. Place where it can surface a lot of data around who you're going to talk to. But you, you talked about this, this layer that's going to put it all together. To me, it sounds, for right now anyway, that the smart AE or SDR is the person who's going to be able to put this all together and go with the strategy that's going to land. D- is that fair?
3: I agree 100%. And, and you're right, uh, whether you're a marketer or a seller, attraction selling or attraction marketing is really powerful, right? You, and, and, and just to bring that to life, the way we all need to think about this is we need to ask ourselves a question concerning our the buyer personas, those buyer roles within our ideal customer profile, within our ICP. As a marketer or a seller, we need to ask ourselves this question. What do they look for online before they would ever know to look for me? What do they look for online before they'd ever know to look for me? And that's how we can create the content that attracts people much earlier in the buyer's journey. And I'll just give you an example of this. Uh, The hobby I do with my family is is wakeboarding and water skiing. And uh, a few years ago now, we decided to get a bigger boat, a, a, a proper wakeboarding boat. And the vehicle that we were using to tow, the four-wheel drive we're using to tow a current ski boat was not big enough for the new boat. And here's the interesting thing. When I jumped online to search for, uh, to be able to decide which vehicle would I go and buy or start looking at, I typed in 3,500 kilo towing capacity and almost nothing came back. And the truth is, there's only about five four-wheel drives that do that. But none of those manufacturers had thought about, well, what does someone look for? What's the trigger event? Well, the trigger event is they buy a bigger boat or a, or a, or a bigger caravan to use the language you use in Australia that, you know, that they tow. So they've bought a, a bigger thing. They're going to tow. That's the trigger event. And then they're going to think, well, what would tow the weight of the thing I've purchased? Um, and you, you could provide insightful content around, you know, how much downward tow bar pressure. You know, should I have on my vehicle? How, how do I know which four wheel drive is right for me? Um, and you and you would start to attract people earlier in their journey. Now, interestingly, the wakeboard boat I bought is an American brand. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a Malibu wake setter. They're made in Australia under license. There's one dealer in the state that I live in. Uh, so I'm based in Sydney in the state of New South Wales. There's only one dealer. Uh, when I when I went and bought the boat, I said to the dealer. Has any four-wheel drive seller, dealer, manufacturer talked to you about some kind of alliance or affiliate program around referrals? So, someone comes to look at a boat and clearly they don't have a, a vehicle that's big enough to tow it. You know, you can make some recommendations or let, let a motor vehicle seller know. And they said no. No one's ever come and had the conversation. And that's an example of smarter selling. That doesn't even involve a whole lot of tech, you know, that piece. But we need to think about the strategies that we can then enable with technology before just jumping in, trying to configure
0: tools. So then it sounds as if, the sales trait of the future, or I shouldn't say future because we know how long it's it's going to last. Well, immediate future is the AE being a conduit to all of this information, this digital information that you speak about, and then making the 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 right logical step in the sales process. Just just to wrap up that thought.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So so sellers need to get good at the basic tech. So, CRM, uh, buying intent tools, email sequencing and and outreach automation tools, be very careful not to blast and spam uh, yourself into being blocked and just damaging your brand. But it all begins with defining your ideal customer profile and documenting and truly understanding your buyer personas because then you know what it is that you'll be looking for in the marketplace. And you think, well, how can I apply technology to find my ICP? How can I apply technology to listen for relevant trigger events? And now I know I'm targeting effectively and I'm protecting the most precious thing in my life as a business person, an entrepreneur, or a seller, and that's my time. I'm applying my time where I'm likely to be able to help the most people and then deliver the strongest results.
2: One of the things that stands out to me is you should be getting a cut from one of those five vehicle manufacturers who the first one who figures out the massive myths that they've got there. Um and it also just immediately makes me think of how many other situations are out there um where those opportunities exist, right? I mean it would be uh, it, it there there is a gold mine out there for the right kind of brain um in analyzing the market um and in you know cross pollination of of people looking for things that you may not immediately connect to your product, but which would surface a trigger event, either having happened or being imminent based on behavior.
3: Yeah, that's so true. Again, I, there's, there's great wisdom in those comments. I agree completely.
1: I want to go back to something that you and John were discussing about it being the seller or the AE who is taking the lead role in using this technology and taking the initiative to do these trigger event searches and and a buyer intent and serving up content. I noticed in the last 10 years, certainly around 2013, a shift away from sellers doing outbound prospecting and relying increasingly on inbound prospecting, even having CROs and marketing departments proclaim, we're going to provide 90% of your pipeline or 50% of your pipeline. I noticed a shift away from sellers doing their own business development. I, I want to know if you noticed that too, as a trend. Certainly, I, I saw it as the rise of email automation came up. And how does this new technology affect that?
3: So Andrew, you, you raise a really valid point. Um, In recent years, uh, selling has gotten itself into some very big problems. Um, Most AEs are way too passive. They're depending on that inside selling function, whether they're called an ISR, an SDR, a BDR. Uh, But there's so many AEs say, look, I know how to sell. I just need more leads. And my response is, well, buddy, if you really knew how to sell, you'd be generating your own leads. There's no seller on the face of the planet (laughs) that can make their number just based on the inbound that's all handed to them. Amen to that. So every AE has a gap, you know, whether they're working at at, at Salesforce, SAP, Adobe, Oracle, you know, no no matter what the company is, every AE has a gap. They've got a pipeline coverage gap that they need to self-generate. So, Yes, you want marketing to run events and create content that attracts people uh, that, that then maybe a BDR can run some outbound to, or they engage with content that creates inbound that an SDR can respond to and try and qualify, and then hand off to an AE. One of the big traps in that process is that machine creates lots of leads that don't convert. So it's a big problem to generate interest without any legitimate intent to change the way that the customer's operating. So just because they have some interest in your widget doesn't mean that their boss is going to approve the two or three better or additional features or functions. Everyone gets back to, well, what's the business case? How does this move the needle on performance? You know, what's the problem with staying in current state? So unless someone can articulate this is essential... And it pays for itself by, unless they've got two compelling um, uh, finishes to those sentences, no, no one's going to approve the business case for change. So um, every AE needs to be their own BDR and, and generate leads. And often the AE is better equipped to call into the C-suite. So AEs and the BDRs need to work together. Maybe the BDRs is doing groundswell in an account, calling in at, at the more medium levels the more junior the person, often the more liberal they are with information that they'll share so you can start to gather intel. And then maybe the AE then calls into the C-suite and says something like, hey, John, um, we, we've been having some conversations with some of the people in your team and I think there may be a way for you to drive. So we, we hero the customer, not us, right? We don't talk about our solutions. We talk about their opportunity to drive improved results. But the AEs need to need to think about their own ICP, buyer personas, monitor for trigger events, use simple tools like Navigator more effectively, and drive better conversations that actually uh, anchor to the commercial value of change. Because the way we open determines whether we'll ever get to close. And the worst thing we want is phantom pipeline, pipeline filled with false hope, um we want to, we want to get through our target list and get to the truth and work where we're going to get a result yeah,
2: i I couldn't agree more with with that uh, methodology in terms of a an account based strategy tony i I also feel like the the proliferation of uh, the response to interaction with content at an SDR level um, that's where you see yeah. these insane volumes of of sequences, sequenced emails going out to the market. Basically, you've got a rep who sits there, waits for signs of life. Um, that person is undoubtedly wearing extremely happy ears and rose-colored glasses, looking for any signal, um, which is gonna give you plenty of phantom pipeline.
1: And, and what I've noticed, Scott, is in the last year, as economic conditions have tightened, we've seen the effectiveness of outbound marketing decrease and reps who don't know how to pick up the phone and generate yes. their own pipeline That's right. suffer. That's right. And, and the other thing
3: is with, with with AEs is most sellers are not good writers. It's just one of the things I've, I've, I've observed. And, you know, creating content is a great strategy. Most sellers can't write. I think one of the next dangers that we face is a lot of sellers will start using something like chat gpt to generate content that just won't be great content and now the world's going to get a whole new level of spamming right people are going to use chat gpt to create myriads of crappy non-insightful content and just start spamming the world you know and that's and that's the problem for every seller How do I become the signal amidst the noise, that white wall of noise that my buyer is facing to be the one that gets some cut through? And at the end of the day, picking up the phone call and then using what I call combo prospecting techniques, little little pattern interruptions that show you're determined with the right conversation narrative, genuine insights, genuine value in a conversation, genuine relevance to the person that we're trying to get to. Ideally, using a common trusted relationship, you know, is the reason that we're contacting them. So trigger events create context, a common referral or common relationship starts with a level of trust. And if we can combine referrals with triggers, we're combining trust with relevance, it creates the fastest path and the highest probability for having a new customer.
1: And as much as I'm looking forward to thousands of chat GPT generated spam (laughs) emails, I think this creates a legitimate opportunity for the wise seller to stand out from the crowd as if everyone is shifting to, like we saw everyone shift to automated email sequences, the wise rep who can combine email sequencing with a personalized phone call, personalized content is going to be further ahead.
0: I really like that point, because a few episodes ago, we talked about that. We talked about how do you rise above the noise? There is so much email flowing out there, phone calls, LinkedIn messages, but nobody is, I got to tell you, for every email I get, for every LinkedIn message I get, I get like 0.1 of a phone call, and you know what? I take the phone call. I do take the phone call because I believe in sales karma. I'll listen to them. And if it's a fit, it's a fit, but I'm inundated with the email and the phone is underutilized
2: message that says, hi, Scott, I see your COO at Salus, which is so great.
0: And then right into their value prop. prop. My favorite one is I see that we are connected to a few people. It would be great to connect. And I literally look at my watch and go, as soon as I press accept, Two minutes later, I'm going to get this. Oh, and I get the pitch. Mm-hmm. And it's like the first person I delete, I, those are the ones I ignore now because I can actually read where it's going.
3: It's so true, John. You know, what What both you and Andrew talked about is absolutely true. So I've, I've got my own methodology that I teach. I've taught thousands of sales reps all over the world on driving outbound. People achieve phenomenal results. But one of the things I say in my programs is you need to be the authentic you in how you apply these concepts. So in running outbound, we need we need to honor the law of brevity. Busy senior people want us to be brief and then be gone <laughs> is the way the senior people think. So they're thinking, why are you relevant to me? Uh, is this something that's important? So they need us to get to the point. Uh, all of this long-winded rapport building and friending just works against us. So in an email, it just needs to be three sentences, you know, not seven paragraphs, no, new, no URL links to case studies, no bullet point shopping lists of pain points, and no language that makes us sound like a seller. So it just needs to look like peer-to-peer communication, almost as if you did it on your, on your Android or your iPhone. So anything that looks like automated, automation is dead out of the gate.
2: Tony, I'm going to go in a, in a bit of a different direction. Um, something I heard you say there um, in terms of the you know, thousands of, of sellers that uh, you've taught in your career. For a company who is growing a sales team, um, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about are are behaviors um, and not necessarily that are connected to a personality trait. It's more a process and tools. I'd be interested in hearing what those traits are um, that you've seen as a common thread of the most successful sales reps that these people who are building those teams should keep a keen eye out
3: for. Scott, that's such a great question. So you you mentioned personality a little earlier uh, and that's a really important part of the mix. So we need someone who's fundamentally intelligent, right? So they need a reasonable IQ. Uh, if you look at their personality and their emotional intelligence, there's some things we should be looking for. So there's four basic personality types, and the one you want to avoid is the is the amiable analytic, or the amiable people pleaser, right? The the amiable expressive personality. Because they avoid bad news and they don't look putting, they don't like putting any form of tension into a conversation. But they really don't like like rejection. And the truth is, anybody in business development uh, needs to be a driven personality. So this this driver personality. And I would say go for a driver analytic so that they're very methodical in what they're seeking to do. The last thing you need is the effusive, narcissistic, blabbermouth, you know, style of selling. Mm-hmm. Um, you need someone You need someone who genuinely listens. So of the four personality traits, you need a driver personality, not an amiable personality. And then they'll either be driver analytic or driver expressive. I know there's different languaging around whether you use DISC or all of these other tools right, for analyzing personality. Uh, and the next thing is they they need to be savvy in how they use their tech um, and they need to be very methodical in their approach. And that's why I like the driver analytic in what they're seeking to do today. So people have to be good at using using the tools and tech. Uh, so, so that would really be the key thing, right? So have they have they got good values and they're all about the customer and are genuinely curious and want customers to achieve great outcomes, uh, and then are they driven to find a way to be successful while they act in the best interest of their customers?
1: I'm going to go in a different direction too, Tony. So you just mentioned the sales rep is driven to find positive outcomes for their their their, their buyer. I want to ask you about how the seller feels about the product or service that they're selling. How important is that to a, a seller being successful. Do they ha- d- must they be a true believer? Can this just be a gig that they're casually into a service that they feel okay about, or do they really need to feel enthusiastic and passionate about the service they provide?
3: That is such an insightful question, Andrew. And it, it, it goes back to the very foundation of what selling is. Selling to me uh, is about making a positive difference in the lives of others. Uh, It's not all about us. It's about serving other people. And right at the beginning of every sales interaction, right at the beginning, there's a battle of belief. Either the person we're approaching, their belief that they're too busy, that things are okay, that this isn't really very important. (laughs) Either that belief wins and the seller then fails and is gone, or the seller's belief wins. This is important. There's an opportunity for you to drive improved results in your role that really matter to your organization. This deserves to be prioritized because of the financial impact and what's happening in the marketplace. Either that belief wins or the buyer's apathy wins. So at the very beginning for every seller is, yes, they need to be a true believer in the value of what they offer. Now, I just encourage every leader listening to this to understand that you want your reps to not just believe in the product, service, or solution that your company sells, like, yes, they need to believe in it and that it is best value for money, but they, they do need to believe that. But more importantly, they need to believe in the positive impact that that product, service, or solution has in the marketplace for customers. And that's why case studies are so important. We need to equip our sellers to tell the great true hear, hear. stories about how others are driving improved results in the marketplace rather than we've got the leading product or solution.
0: I'm going to switch gears too, but this is something that I'm, I'm kind of passionate about over the last couple of months, because we're seeing a lot of tech layoffs, Tony. Yes. Um, every time you, you're reading your favorite newsfeed, it's, uh, it's bad news. And I want to get your opinion on this. Um, for all of those sales roles that were hired, maybe a year, a year and a half ago, how many really had a chance? Or did sales operations or someone from above just say, the number needs to grow, therefore we need to add this many heads and therefore we have to add the capacity on the sales team? Because you know I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit sensitive in the market that we're in because I think the salesperson always gets it first. And I'm seeing that in the industry. What do you see good organizations doing in order to make sure that people who are taking a job have a, have a fighting chance in the first place?
3: Well, the first thing is many organizations, I think, had noble intent. They thought, you know what? The pandemic's hit. Uh, we're going to do the opposite of our competition. We're going to invest in growth. We're going to invest in our people we're going to be good corporate citizens. And, and many organizations did that. And I've got clients I've worked with that have, have taken market share from competition and achieved amazing results. What followed the pandemic, um, you know, where everyone was trying to cope with this r- remote engagement environment was actually a whole lot of disengagement uh, and people got very fatigued. And then straight on the back of it, we've then gone into this new economy with a whole lot of economic ch- challenges. And, and the chickens have, have come home to roost now, uh, and the economic realities uh, have really landed. So, organizations just going for growth without considering cost of acquisition and profitability, the money behind those businesses, and Salesforce is an example of this. You know, they've r- recently announced a whole lot of layoffs, so as Microsoft. There's lots of tech companies that have. But Salesforce has has never really been focused on on profitability. They've just always been focused on top line growth. you know, you add more reps, that adds more revenue. So okay, but but is it happening profitably? So businesses are now going how do we do this profitably? And just the other thing I'll layer on to this. so for example, in Salesforce reducing the number of sellers, well they were hiring massive numbers of people way ahead of the curve, you could argue way ahead of what was justifiable financially, and now they're more right-sizing. So Salesforce is not in trouble. It's a rock-solid business, uh, but they're just really right-sizing and being more conscious of profitability. But let me layer one other thing that's gone on here: is You hire sellers and you try and onboard them into your organization and get them up to productivity and success when they're just a remote worker, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible, because people need to sit beside others and learn through osmosis, and and stay motivated by being around other people. A little little bit of healthy competition, seeing others succeed and fail, and learning from them, ha- having those coffee conversations. So it's been very hard to ramp people to productivity when they're remote, uh, and even for senior people like them, building their internal networks that enable that, en- that enable them to get things done. Because good AEs do as much selling internally as they do out there in the marketplace to really make deals happen.
0: Yeah, and, and, I, and I guess where I was going with that is I just, I'm just watching this and maybe not so much in like the super big companies, but like, maybe the the 15 to $20 million ARR companies here who, who are hiring irresponsibly. And I think that if there is something that we've learned from this, Is that maybe I'm going to coin this term right now with us three on the call, four on the call, is ethical hiring for sales and making sure that sales operations or the executive team really looks to make sure that there is a line of success before they hire anybody else. Because as I said earlier, it's the salesperson who takes it on the nose first. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big champion of trying to do what we can to avoid that because it sucks. Before we wrap up, Tony, I want to ask you about your sales IQ course, specifically the uh, the course around prospecting. And I got to tell you, I took the course. Five of my AEs took the course. It was the leave behind, the playbook, the experience was fantastic. And I would like for you to share to the listeners how they might be able to learn a little bit more.
3: Thanks so much, John. And uh, it really goes to what uh, you, Andrew, and Scott were also talking about in employers hiring salespeople and needing needing to set them up for success. And I also feel really strongly about this. Unless the hiring organization, the leadership team, are brutally honest about product market fit and on that basis, defining their ideal customer profile, understanding their buyer personas, nailing their messaging, uh, thinking about the best challenges, building cadences and sequences, aligning sales process to buyer journey, thinking about objections, best questions – all of that needs to be done to set a salesperson up for success, uh, and you shouldn't be hiring sales and marketers as a leader until you've done that. Uh, the Sales IQ Create Pipeline course does exactly that, and the, and the participant builds all of this into a playbook that they can use within their own organization to radically drive up their success. So, people that do this create insanely positive results. So, if you'd like to have a look at it, just go to salesiqglobal.com. And there's the Create Pipeline program. Uh, it's an e-learning program with also live coaching. So uh, thanks certainly for, for asking about that, but it embodies a lot of what we've all been talking about today.
2: It's been a pleasure, Tony. Thank you for sharing your, your insights and, and experience. Uh, it, it's really been uh, one of my favorite
3: episodes to date, I got to say. Thank you, Scott, so much. And it, it's so good to, to
0: hear and see you again, buddy. Tony, I'm, I, I'm super glad that you took the opportunity to speak to us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I hope that we can do it again.
3: John, thank you so much. Uh, everyone should feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, if you'd like to learn more, go ahead and buy Tech Powered Sales. It's a read
0: that I think will blow your mind and also really help you. If you like the show, follow us on LinkedIn, we're The Rally Call, follow us on Spotify, on Apple, share the word, let's get it out. There's a sales revolution coming and it's starting with The Rally Call.
2: The Rally Call is produced by Scott Switzer. John, uh, great episode, great work out there today as always. If you don't mind, we'd just like to get a a quick clip of you just just really randomly butchering uh, Tony's name. Uh, Just... You know, however you feel it, and then maybe just hit the mic afterwards for, for no reason.
0: Tony Hughes, Tooney. Tony, Tony. Nailed it, John. Perfect. That's a wrap.